Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. It is the 10th of June this morning. It's a Thursday morning, and this is the fourth day of 10 in which we have a show that is Mornings Sans Carmen. Mornings without Carmen. Carmen is on a two-week holiday. Good for her. She's at a fitness camp in California. Because Still it, don't get that. No, the bundle Still of energy that. that Carmen LaBerge is, There's I, I, can, I just cannot picture her sitting back in the lawn chair Sipping an iced tea on the beach, uh, just the level of activity oh, she, she can brings. Do that. Trust she me, she can. So oh, she, yeah. uh, she sweet. can. It's got to be sweet tea, but yes. sweet. That's true. That is in, from Tennessee. Sweet tea would be a very big deal mm-hmm. uh, for her. She she has a, a knack for sort of cluing us into the delectability of southern food that I often do not know about until she texts me photos, and encourages me to eat, to eat those things. But speaking of eating, Paul, we had referenced earlier this week that it was chocolate ice cream day at yes, one point. Yes. Again, I don't know how ice cream gets its own day. But some of our listeners were texting Why in there. Why wouldn't it? Well, it's that's that's a fair counter question. Huh? I feel like you and I are doing some sort of Old Testament rabbinical thing of asking each other questions back and forth right now. But some of our listeners would text in and talk about their favorite ice cream flavor. And I know one of our listeners talked about the idea of chocolate and peanut butter ice cream, mm. which was my ice cream of choice last night as we celebrated my son's final regular season Little League game. And here's what I came to realize again about ice cream. And, and I think there's sort of this holy forgetfulness that happens after your last go with ice cream because it's probably, when you're eating that cone, maybe the seven best minutes of dairy that you can <laughs> exactly. possibly choose, right? Out of all the dairy categories, ice cream going down for those seven minutes. But, Paul, the succeeding 12 hours post-ice cream experience, it, it, you live in sort of perpetual reg- re- regret at that point. I, it, it, I, I'm not happy that I ate the ice cream last night. And and so what do we do when we make choices, right, about which we are unhappy? I don't know that I need to repent about the ice cream, <laughs> but I kind of feel like I do right now because it, it seemed like it was going to be such a good idea. But we talked yesterday, you and me, about the idea uh, of we're living sort of in this deceit or this fog oftentimes. And I, I think that's – I talked with my students about the great fog in which we live mm-hmm. and in that you need to be mindful that probably what seems like life that's in front of you may lead to death and it may lead to things that doesn't bring shalom to your heart. And mm-hmm. and so the silly ice cream example aside, what part of what I've loved about this past week is we just have these regular guests on that are helping sort of penetrate that darkness and penetrate that fog and bring us into life. And I was so excited to wake up this morning and know that Thursday morning guest Ben Johnson would start the show. I haven't had a chance to talk with Ben for quite a long time. And he is such a person of light. He just helps us kind of carve into the midst uh, of what my favorite theological term is, and that is the baloney that's around us, right? And well, that is that the Greek or the Hebrew? Well, it, it may be neither, <laughs> but I do love the term uh, theological baloney, and it kind of cuts through the heart of that. And then in the second half of this hour, I'm looking forward to talking with dear friend Gary Stratton as well. And Gary is somebody who has worked in Hollywood for so many years. He's been deans in, in institutions around the country. And we're going to talk a little bit with Gary in the second half of this hour that maybe the failure of the church that we're experiencing right now that many of us are hand-wringing about understandably is the, the, the focus of that or the locus of that 
has really been a failure of discipleship, not just not trying hard enough as disciples, but maybe a failure of a theology of discipleship mm-hmm. to begin with. And I think Gary's going to do a good job helping sort of call us back to what life was like following Jesus in those early times. So it's going to be a great first hour ahead, great show ahead here for the 10th of June. Looking forward to hanging with all of you as you are listening this morning. And as always, love to hear from you as well. So if anything that Ben Johnson says or Gary Stratton says in this hour is thought-provoking to you, please feel free to text the studio at 877-933-2484. Up next, we have Ben Johnson. Welcome back to the show. That, of course, is the music of Ben Johnson. If you're a regular listener of Mornings with Carmen, you'll know that Ben joins us every Thursday morning to talk through some of the headlines in our country. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Peter. Good to be with you again. Yeah, it's so nice to hear your voice again. We've had a lot of great chats over the years and appreciate your perspective that you bring into some of these headlines. And Ben, there's a lot to cover this morning for sure. And and shockingly enough, some of the headlines out of Washington, D.C. would seem to indicate that the each side of the political aisle is having a difficult time getting along. I was I was really surprised by this, Ben, that, that this manifested in this way, that maybe the Democrats can't get along with the Republicans, nor the Republicans with the Democrats, but it seems to be manifesting itself in a brand new way related to this massive infrastructure bill that's on the table and, and would uh, propose to alleviate a, a lot of issues in our society, at least according to the authors of the bill. But tell us what's happening here. Well, you're right. You know, the uh, the twin pillars of the American political system are self-interest and mutual hatred. So you <laughs> see that going on with the infrastructure bill. Uh, the, the two sides have been at um, at um, war over the, this infrastructure bill for some time. Uh, President Biden, of course, initially uh, introduced something like a $2.1 trillion bill. He ended up spinning that into two separate bills, and the infrastructure portion of it came down to about a trillion uh, he was working with a Republican group led by Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, who uh, just, by the way, is the middle hinge in a three-generation political dynasty in West Virginia. Her father, Arch Moore, was three, three-term three uh, governor, uh, Republican governor of the state. Her son, Art, her son Moore Capito, is uh, currently in the House of Delegates. She is uh, very much in favor of trying to pass something. They came up all the way to $928 billion, which is you know, almost as, as far as you can go to, uh, to, cl- to clear that gap. According to every side, though, it broke down yesterday morning. Uh, Joe Biden gave a call to Shelley Moore Capito and said this is not going to go any further because they couldn't agree about how to pay for it. The Republican plan does not want to raise a single dollar in taxes. Now, as it happens, how can you spend a trillion dollars in taxes, not raise the deficit uh, and not raise taxes? What they found was there was about a trillion dollars worth of COVID relief funds that have not been spent. Of course, the PPP program has come to an end. They're not taking new applications. There are other areas where money has not been spent yet. So the money has been allocated, but it's just going to float around or be spent on other priorities. And uh, they thought this would be a perfect place to spend that. Uh, Biden really wants to raise the uh, corporate tax rate. So that was uh, the sticking point here. Right now, he has shifted to another group called the Problem Solvers Caucus. It's a bipartisan group led by Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who are the two holdouts, of course, on the filibuster, as well as Republicans like Bill Cassidy and Mitt Romney. 
Uh, we don't have a lot of the specifics on that. We know we do know that uh, Mitt Romney has said that raising taxes is an absolutely off the books uh, idea, so that's not going to float. And that uh, so far the tech the uh, the price tag for this is seven hundred sixty two trillion dollars over eight years, so significantly less in terms of spending, but uh, still quite a bit going out. Uh, so I, I think if think if you look carefully, there are some interesting political things going on beneath the surface here. But those are that's the way that the uh, programs and the proposals currently stack up. Mm, ben, circling back for just a minute to that idea that there's one trillion dollars still floating around from the COVID relief funds, and as a business owner myself, I know how beneficial the PPP loan structures and the sort of the double disbursement of that was to help us get through some of the rougher times in all of this. But if we have a a trillion dollars floated around that was legislatively allocated for a certain kind of program, uh, I heard you say that maybe it's going to get allocated somewhere else. Well, I don't I guess maybe I don't understand the realities of economic law enough. Can they just take funds that were meant to be allocated for one program and sort of siphon them into another? Does it have to be passed in a new bill or how does this work? Uh, the money has been spent, and uh, you know it was it was originally allocated for COVID relief or economic relief. Uh, it is probably most of it will be included in a category that's broad enough that the administration can just repurpose it. You might remember this is what the Trump administration did on the border. Uh, they couldn't get any any funding in terms of uh, building the border wall that was so important to the Trump administration because of the two six, 2016 promise to build a wall. So he simply took money from other parts and uh, used some discretion in order to uh, change where it was spent. I think that's very much what uh, the Biden administration would like to do here as well, to spend it elsewhere on other things. And then you've got this other trillion dollars in spending that uh, they want to do yet uh, that will be a separate bill, and that will bring a whole different negotiation structure along with it. Uh, Switching the topic to another one of the bills that's going through, there's been quite a lot of conversation about election reform in our country. There's the perceptions on one side of the aisle, that being the Republican side, that many people would... Uh, have been questioning the integrity of the election in 2020 uh, on one hand, and that there's legislation coming to bear that would make it more difficult, at least in some people's minds, for voters to be able to cast their vote. And on the other side, there's a lot of hand-wringing about things like gerrymandering or breaking people up into districts to sort of herd like people together so that maybe all their votes don't matter quite as much. And the back and forth has been pretty interesting to watch, but it seems that there was one senator who is sort of the linchpin in all of this and whether some of this new election reform would pass or not pass, and that's Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And he said pretty, something pretty interesting this last week, that it's kind of a non-starter for him to go ahead and, uh, and vote on the Democratic side, even though he's a Democratic senator. So talk us through this a little bit. He is a Democratic senator from an overwhelmingly Republican state. He is, of course, the colleague of Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, a state that was overwhelmingly Democratic up until uh, really the George W. Bush administration. And from that point forward, it has become almost the most Republican state in the country. Forty percent. It was there was a 40 point difference between Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden this time out, even though Biden is uh, putatively a coal country Democrat. So. There's been a massive swing in terms of going from blue to red over the last few uh, generations. And really, Joe Manchin is kind of an endangered species now, whereas uh, at one point there were a lot of Democrats very much like him, both in the party nationally as well as in West Virginia in terms of its delegation, uh, people like Nick Rahal and others. So he is really in uh, in his own uh, unique situation is almost a caucus of one in in the uh, nation's capital. And since they have such a closely divided Senate, 50-50, uh, any one senator can make a big deal. But he wants to uh, talk about being bipartisan on this. He doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster, both he and Kirsten Sinema. 
uh, are very much opposed to that. They want things to be bipartisan because the day is going to come and may not be that far off. It may be less than two years away when Democrats will be in the minority again, and they might want to use the filibuster as they did 317 times last year. Mm. So uh, they, they think that this is something that needs to be uh, taken care of. Uh, this For the People Act, uh, of course, among other things, it uh, it overreaches in terms of its constitutionality. The election law is supposed to be set by the state. Uh, this is the national government striking down laws all across the country in many cases. Uh, for one thing, there would be no ability to have a voter ID law. So uh, any voter ID law in the nation would be struck down. Uh, there would also be same-day voter registration. Uh, there would be uh, also some restrictions in terms of speech when it comes to election electioneering. So there would be some considerable concerns with this bill. Uh, really, if, if, if we want to connect these two, Joe Manchin is what connects these two stories, uh, which is if you're cynical enough, you can kind of see through what's happening. Uh, Joe Manchin is now leading up this group that is succeeding where Shelley Moore Capito, the Republican in his state, won't succeed. What you're going to see, I think, is a much smaller infrastructure bill with an awful lot of it going to West Virginia, Robert Byrd style. Uh, and Joe Manchin will be able to take credit for this. He'll say that he succeeded where the Republicans didn't, and that will tee him up for re-election in a really negative environment for Democrats in West Virginia. And uh, Shelley Moore will uh, will walk away without a win, and he'll walk away with a W in the category. And then you'll get all the rest of the spending that Joe Biden wanted to do, either through reappropriating some of the money, as we talked about, or by bringing it up in another bill through reconciliation, where you need only 50 Democrats. And Joe Biden will probably manage to make his way onto that bill when it finally comes through. Mm, spot on analysis, sort of cutting through the the propaganda, maybe on either side in this, Ben. I appreciate it. And, and by the way, the Greek term is hogwash. Hogwash. Is that what it means? <laughs> See, I had always understood it as baloney, but I think I had my, re, my Greek wrong back in uh, seminary days. Hey, we'll take a short break, step away for just a minute. And when we come back, we'll change the topic into some of the dimensions of news media, where how do we think about things when the news media gets a little too chummy with a presidential leader? It is about 21 minutes past the top of the hour here on the 10th of June. We're chatting with Ben Johnson about some of the political headlines of the day. We'll talk about media in just a second. We're also talking uh, with such sophisticated terminology, Ben, as baloney and hogwash this morning. Although those are pretty fair words, I think, sometimes uh, to describe what we observe in the world around us. Uh, alas, uh, we are swimming in both of those, and uh, we, we do our best to cut through to the heart because if you don't have accurate information, then you can't live out your Christian vocation. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And speaking of accurate information, I think when we see the polls in terms of trustworthiness of media over the last 10 or so years, and you've been a media member for a very long time, as have I, and then there really has been a change in the media in terms of trying to draw eyeballs and trying to draw the finances that come with the eyeballs. And so... Uh, increasingly, any sense of, of fair-minded journalism on either side of the aisle seems to be something of the past. I noted with interest when Fox News started losing a lot of its viewers post-President Trump, and they were even critical of President Trump, that uh, that caused some hand-wringing there as well. And suddenly they're much more friendly again, and they're getting eyeballs back to President Trump. So you see the media over there on one side getting chummy with a political leader. On the other side recently, we've certainly saw CNN do the same thing with the press secretary for President Biden, where they asked the question along the lines of how can we help with the Biden agenda? I mean, Ben, can you imagine Walter Cronkite at this point asking the question uh, of, of a president or of a, a presidential 
press secretary, how can we help in your agenda? Right. And, you know, we, we see this maybe during wartime where you would expect that kind of uh, a comedy between the press and uh, they would have a sort of a detente where the, the press would understandably have to uh, elide certain information from what it was reporting, unless you're Geraldo Rivera, in which case you give away the troops' positions. But everybody else, uh, you know, would, would generally go along with uh, what was going on, but only during times of war. Uh, in times of peace, uh, the, the journalist is taught that he is supposed to be the one who holds power accountable. And instead, uh, they're very much becoming the uh, the PR agency of whichever administration happens to be in power. You're right, there's certainly been a move in Fox. I think they had a scare put into them uh, between November and January when a lot of people were going to Newsmax or OAN, and now they've come back around. When it comes to um, what, what uh, in my writing at uh, Daily Wire, I was called the legacy media, places like CNN and the major networks and MSNBC, uh, which of course is part of the NBC News family, you see a lot of the exact same cozying up to this administration. Uh, so this, this past uh, weekend, you had Brian Stelzer on Reliable Sources talking to uh, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki, and he asked her, what do the press get wrong when they cover you? In other words, what can we do? How can you help us shape our coverage of you? It's, it's like uh, if, if, you're, if you've written a book and it's going to be reviewed and you pick the reviewer to do it, uh, which, which is something I've seen done in various publications, you know, that's, that's highly dubious, ethically questionable, and you know you're not getting a spot-on analysis. But I mean, Brian Stelter, and of course, Stelter and, and Saki work together in CNN because there's a continual revolving door between media and politics. And Saki's been on both sides of that. She was with the Obama administration, then worked at CNN. Now she's back with Biden. But, uh, uh, you know, so there's a little bit of a, a very friendly relationship there between them at any rate. But uh, he, where he's talking about what, what can journalists do to help you out, that's really concerning. You look at some of the other hardcore questions you asked her. Do you feel like you've made any progress in defeating the lies? What's your advice for trying to stay close to the truth in a world of lies? So it, it's clear that, uh, you know, he's talking to someone whose only job is to repeat the propaganda of an administration, mm -hmm. uh, which changes from day to day. And it would be true regardless of who the spokesperson is. It's true of Kylie McEnany and, and Sean Spicer and Marlon Fitzwater for George H.W. Bush and everyone all the way back. Your job is to make the administration look good. Uh, you're not necessarily there to give a fair playing field uh, in terms of reality, particularly where that would make you look bad. So uh, here's someone from the media talking about, uh, how is it that we can help you get your point across? And that's highly concerning. If you are someone who wants uh, truth and reality, you should be questioning everything, not uh, simply questioning, how can we help you? Mm, man, we're just about out of time. But one more point on that. I think that's important for us as believers as well as people who need to be committed to the truth, not because we're trying to be heavy handed or wield a hammer with that truth, but because we believe in the idea that Jesus says that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that when you are walking in the truth of the kingdom, there is a freedom and there is a shalom and there's a centeredness that comes with all of that. And so the idea of humility among believers to be willing to pursue the truth and willing to bend the arc of their life towards that truth, instead of being a propaganda, uh, uh, propaganda agent for somebody else's truth, I think is such an important invitation in the midst of this. Oh, it truly is. Without that, uh, we, we have one truth. It's the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the only one who lays down the truth. I know that uh, whenever each of us comes there, we have to change. And of course, the Greek word, this is a real Greek word, not like the ones we were previewing <laughs> in the last segment, metanieta, meaning to change our minds. And that's what the meaning of repentance is. The Greek word for repentance, metanieta, to change our mind. And where we change our mind, our, our, our 
actions will follow where our thoughts go. So that's that's uh, the key thing for us, is to know what Jesus Christ is, to know the truth, and to follow in his ways, regardless of what one side or the other, whether it's our side or the other side, may propagandistically say, we have to hew to the truth, because it's the only route that leads us to the capital T truth, to allowing us to serve him in truth, in reality, in this world. Oh, Ben, I love it. Give me that word one more time in the Greek for our listeners. Metanieta. Metanieta. That's exactly what I'm doing about the chocolate peanut butter ice cream that I ate last night, Ben. Meta, <laughs> Metanieta. I just so appreciate the way you shine light in the world. If you want to catch some of Ben's work, you can go to the Daily Wire and catch a, a very fair-minded approach to the issues of the day. Have a great rest of the morning, Ben. And you as well. Good to talk to you again. You too. We'll take a short break and have some bottom of the hour news. And when we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. Gary Stratton, a great friend of the program as well. And Gary and I are going to talk about an idea related to the failure of discipleship and how we can recapture a robust theology of biblical discipleship to help carve a way out into the future. Looking forward to the next segment with uh, Dr. Gary Stratton. And interestingly enough, as Gary is able to do, having been somebody who worked in Hollywood for a number of years, he's going to somehow make a connection, Paul and all of our listeners, he's going to make a connection between Spider-Man and the Nicene Creed of the 4th century and uh, talk about discipleship from that basis. I'm very curious how he's going to pull all of these (laughs) things together. But when it comes to Spider-Man, there's been so many different iterations of this. I don't know if you have a favorite version of it over the last maybe 15 years. Mm. You know, I'm still, believe it or not, I, I, some of the new ones are interesting, but I like the Tobey Maguire series. Yeah, a lot of people do. And the, the Tobey Maguire really kind of Even if he it. really wasn't very Spider-Man-y. Or, okay, okay, he was so Peter Parker. I mean, he was just kind he of... Was. That kind the, of nerdish scientist, oh, yeah. right? That, yeah, that somehow was that, a superhero when he put on the spandex. How that transforms into a superhero, I don't know. Yeah, well, looking forward to this conversation with Gary. I know when I was about six or seven years old, I was trying to build web shooters in the basement and never really succeeded. But what I know Gary will succeed at is being pretty thought-provoking and tying together Spider-Man, the Nicene Creed, and a theology of discipleship moving forward. When a teen's behavior is way out of line, it's easy to think that he or she doesn't deserve grace. That may be exactly the right time to give it. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. A biblical definition of grace is this, God's undeserved favor and forgiveness when we've chosen to do the unforgivable. In human terms, grace is an act of kindness, love, and forgiveness in the face of bad behavior and poor choices, and yes, even a teen's outright rebellion or rotten attitude. So the next time your teen messes up, take a moment before you respond. Extending grace may not feel good, but grace given at just the right moment has the power to change the course of any struggle and bring healing and peace and restoration. Parenting teens isn't for the faint of heart. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Check out his latest resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org.
Welcome back to the show here for the 10th of June. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in from Car- for Carmen LeBurge this morning and so happy to be welcoming Gary Stratton into the program. He is a dean of school and arts and sciences and a university professor of spiritual formation and cultural leadership at Johnson University. Gary also worked in Hollywood for a number of years and has just a wonderful take on the intersection of our faith and our culture around us. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Peter. So I'm very intrigued by the premise of what you've written about recently, and I read through it last night, was talking with my wife Hallie about this, where you are making a connection somehow between one of the Spider-Man movies and the Nicene Creed. And before we get into some of the creedal formulations of our faith from the fourth century, kind of walk us through this anecdote, this this part of the Spider-Man story that's relevant. Well, I was looking for, you're always looking for things to communicate to your students, Um, and I do teach uh, theology and film class, but suddenly struck me, you know, in Spider-Man 2, uh, everybody has their favorite Spider-Man, you know, who should be the Spider-Man. I think we're up to four of them now. <laughs> no, five, because there's two or more more in the multiverse. Yes, but, the multiverse uh, has really mixed things up. There's no question. Yeah, definitely. But in Spider-Man 2, you've got Dr. Otto Octavius, who's this mentor to Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man. And he thinks he's going to solve all the problems of the world with this infinite clean energy by creating this fusion reactor he has to use these robotic AI arms to do. And there's this one moment where it looks like it's actually working. And he says, the power of the sun in the palm of my hand. But uh, yeah, this is a science fiction movie. So (laughs) end of first act. Um, Things go wrong. Uh, The technology is unstable. The whole thing starts to collapse into this black hole that sucks the whole room into it. Unfortunately, Spider-Man's able to like cut off the power before it becomes self-sustaining, but not before the flying debris that's being sucked into this black hole kills Octavius' wife, Rosalie, which kind of takes him a little crazy. And then the artificial intelligence in his robotic arms take over his mind. So now with eight appendages, he becomes Doc Ock. (laughs) Uh, And it's bad, bad, bad from that point forward. It is indeed. And that, and that black hole reference where it kind of sucks everything in is a, a pretty interesting take in terms of when you look back at the creeds and just for maybe some really brief historical context, the, the creeds happened in around the fourth century. It was under the leadership of Constantine in which Christianity was finally legalized after three centuries of pretty harsh persecution. And in that legalization of Christianity, they had to wrestle through uh, in that part of the world with what they felt like was true about the faith and, and to kind of come up with a, with an orthodox take because there were so many splinter groups of Christianity. So I think there was some good rationale for trying to come together and say, what do we believe together? But then maybe from that, some unintended consequences happen. So take us into that as well. Well, I mean, that's really kind of the, where the illustration to Doc Ock comes from, because, uh, you know, he tries it again in his deranged mind. And now he's created something that's so big, it literally could, you know, destroy the whole planet. And Peter just can't save it. And of course, spoiler alert here, I'm going to tell you how the movie ends, but he can't save Mary Jane Watson, his love, he can't save the world. But he finally appeals to the rational part of Doc Ock's minds and said, you know, you spoke to me about intelligence. It was a gift for the greater good. And incredibly, Doc Ock comes to mind, you know, comes back in his right mind, fights off the AI, and they work together to kind of flood this black hole with the Hudson River so it doesn't destroy the world, which was, you know, not very good science. But it's a good (laughs) illustration because what happened in these creeds, they work so hard to defend all these external things to the life and teaching of Jesus. They were really worried about people not thinking he was really God. Uh, and so much, because, and there were crazy things out there about him, that, that he was really a Roman Titan kind of thing, kind of this half God, half human thing that was neither, or he was just this hologram from heaven, but didn't really have a body. So they, they nailed it down so much to help us see that he's, you know, he's truly God. 
that they somehow managed to leave out his entire life from mm. the moment after he was born to to his suffering before Pilate, they never talk about anything about his life, and most, even more deadly than that, not one of his teachings becomes part of theological orthodoxy. Yeah, I think that's the really important point that now we want to center on this morning, Gary, is that is that big black hole in the middle of the creed. And again, the creeds were formed, I think we need to understand that they were formed in response to events in that day. So of course, they're going to have some things missing. But as we've made them sort of orthodox over these last 1700 years, maybe we miss what they are missing. So if I just read the first part of the Apostles' Creed, with which I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar, it's going to point out that black hole that you reference. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Again, all of those things were very important to help sort of deal with the heresies of the day. But after that phrase, born of the Virgin Mary, this is where you put in parentheses, black hole, says, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, third day rose from the dead, and on and on. All these things very true. But Gary, when I look around at the landscape of Christendom, I suppose we could call it, in the United States of America these last 10, 15, 20 years, there's been a, a lot of consternation about hypocrisy, about moral failing, about uh, these power plays and divisions and strife and, and all of what we see. And I would at least suggest the idea that this is a failure of discipleship. It is a failure in that black hole of not really understanding and knowing what Jesus was teaching in those three years in a theology of discipleship where we actually become authentically like Jesus. When you when you watch those disciples following him in, in movies like The Chosen and in other contexts, they the expectation was not only would they try to act like Jesus and try really hard to do it, they would actually become just like Jesus from the inside out. And and can you imagine if our if our institutions called the church were filled with people, you and me, we, we all struggle with hypocrisy, but with the theology of discipleship where we become like Jesus from the inside out. No, I mean, that that is the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is this miraculous thing because of his death and his resurrection and the giving of the spirit. He literally comes to dwell within us. And the whole point is for us to become, uh, well, he would say like his heavenly father, perfect in mercy and love. But for us, it's for us to become like him to follow. And even any human leader we're following, we're following them so that we can, as they follow Christ and this imitation of Christ living out this in this life principle that's put within us, living without us, and yet we're not encouraged to actually look carefully at his life and what it meant to be a follower of him. And like as you said, a theology of discipleship, because we're ignoring his life and his teachings. Yeah, you write in this article, and I thought it was again incredibly insightful. Where you said that you're sort of in a Bible study with friends, and said that following Jesus meant only giving intellectual assent to a set of traditional propositions without ever devoting to knowing and following Jesus's life and teaching. So again, just one more time, following Jesus was just giving intellectual assent to a set of traditional propositions or truths without ever devoting themselves. And Gary, if you and I and all of our listeners could rewind ourselves some 2,000 years ago and, and stand on that Mediterranean soil and this Nazarene carpenter came out and began to say, you follow me and you follow me and you follow me as well, there would have been the expectation that over time you would begin to think just like your rabbi thought, you would have the character of your rabbi increasingly developed in you, and you would wield the power and authority of the rabbi. And that's what we're talking about. It's different uh, to know the truth, right, and to be able to say the truth, but to actually become the truth who was Jesus through the power of his spirit. That's really the invitation here. Yeah, and we want to dumb down uh, what it means to follow Jesus. and But in his, his day, uh, I mean, as you said, just starting out, 
as a follower of any rabbi, you were expected to completely master their interpretations of the Torah, the law, and then to become like them. I mean, that's what you're commanded to do because they're supposed to be the living embodiment of the law. Well, if that was true of a human rabbi, oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, infinitely more of the infinite, you know, divine rabbi in Jesus. And yet we'd really dumb it down. And it's easy to pick on people in the past. So let's not talk about present yet. Just think about, I mean, so you're you're uh, uh, Christian leaders, and you're, there's a problem of of Islam growing in uh, the Middle East and North Africa, and so you sit down and say, "What should we do?" Oh, I think we'll dispatch armies from all over Europe to go kill Muslims. Hmm. But I know I'm a good Christian because I'm reciting the creed, and there's nothing in the creed that says I shouldn't kill people or kill Muslims or love my neighbor or or love God with all my heart, soul, and strength. And so I think I'm a good Christian because I'm reciting the creed when I'm actually actually in complete opposite of the way Jesus taught us to live. And that just happens again and again and again throughout church history. Yeah, I think, uh, you again, you're right sort of in the heart of maybe the pathway forward that I, I would suggest if a church wanted to sort of rebuild the beautiful people of light to be able to shine light in the darkness around us, maybe if we just spent a year or two or three or four really examining and walking in those teachings of Jesus. So when we come back, Gary, let's get into a couple of those teachings of Jesus that may seem counterintuitive or countercultural and kind of wonder if we could rewind ourselves 2,000 years ago, what might we hear from our risen rabbi? Paul, that sounds like something out of Spider-Man. Do I have that right? I mean, once again, Carmen oh, and I talk often. something out of Spider-Man. You are yeah. so spot on all the time with your references. So that, is that truly from the Spider-Man yeah. 2 that reference? Yeah. That is just amazing. I love it. Well, welcome back to the show, everybody. Toddy, uh, talking with Gary Stratton this morning here at about 11 minutes before the top of the hour. And Gary... Your, your premise this morning that you brought to us is this idea that there's a bit of a black hole, uh, a.k.a. what happened out of Spider-Man, and, and referencing that then into the creedal formations of the fourth century and the idea that there's some things missing in the creeds as important as they are. Primary among them is the way of life that Jesus both manifested and taught. And I just thought it might be interesting for you and I to go back and forth a little bit. And if listeners, if you have some things about the words of Jesus that you think, wow, we really could pay attention to those words as well, I'd love to hear from you at 877-933-2484. But Gary, one of the first ones that comes to mind is right out of Matthew 5, when Jesus is now coming out of the wilderness and, and he has gone through his time of testing and trial, and he's about to open his mouth for the first time on behalf of the kingdom of God. And I love this picture. He's sitting on the, uh, on the hillside outside of Galilee. He's about to give the Sermon on the Mount. Undoubtedly, it was a, it was a bunch of rabble that was sitting around him at this point. People who had failed to measure up were sort of the outcasts of society on so many levels. And the first words out of his mouth is he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God, literally meaning blessed are those who know they don't actually have what it takes because for them, then the kingdom begins to open up. And to me, Gary, that's one of those counterintuitive places that really the entrance into discipleship is not trying to work harder, do harder, do more, get up, make commitments, get into devotional, all of those things where we just keep trying to clean ourselves up and try harder, the heart or the entry point into discipleship is to go all the way to that place of humility and surrender and say, oh, brother, I don't have anything close to what it takes. And, uh, and, and absent of tethering my life to you, Jesus, I really have no hope. But if I do that, then the kingdom begins to open. That, to me, seems counterintuitive in terms of who we put up as shining examples of disciples who, at least on the outside, appear to have it all together. No, I think, I mean, you just think about it in the context of them sitting there. Um, I mean, they've been waiting for, you know, hundreds of years for the kingdom of God to come in. And of course, for them, it's all about 
the Messiah is going to come take up arms and beat up the Romans and set up the military political kingdom of God on the earth. Uh, but the, the story is that God's really mad at them and distance because they're unrighteous. So if you're not righteous, if you're not, and your righteousness is expressed in how rich you are, like that's God's reward. If you're righteous, you're rich. Uh, otherwise, you can't get into the kingdom of God. And for Jesus to stand up and say, yeah, if you're poor in spirit, then the kingdom of God is yours. Mm. Like th they must have been shaking their head and pulling out Q-tips or whatever, you know, whatever they use, trying to, did I hear that correctly? I mean, that is just so counterintuitive, not just to us today, but to them, because we want these shiny examples of triumphalistic, successful uh, Christians. Uh, and he's saying, no, 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 no. It's I, The kingdom of God comes to people who are desperate, who are broken, who are clinging to, to me. Yeah. Well, think about it. Okay, so let me throw one back at you. Yeah, please do. Okay, so later in the Sermon on the Mount, and I've been spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount because of this book, but, um, you know, he says, you have said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's I me. Mean, that's right out of the law. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. So, I mean, what Gary, difference would that yeah, make? I know. That, I mean, that gives me chills, actually, when you read it, uh, to to be praying for those who hate you. To when, when we think about the word love, meaning that you desire the wholeness of another person, that somebody may be locked in sin and maybe uh, losing the battle to it and, and is walking in this darkness, that in that place, what your posture towards that person, even though they might be bringing harm to you, is that it doesn't mean you let them run all over you. It just simply means that even in the midst of that, my deepest desire of my heart is that you would be made whole. That, that that somehow the power of sin and death would be broken in your life and that the wonder of who you were uh, and the wonder of who you are as an image bearer of in this world, that that is what I long for most. And when you think about what Jesus did on the cross, right? It, he, he was up on the cross and he said to these people who were unjustly killing him and, and nailing his hands and his feet to a cross and putting a sword or a spear in his side, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. This this is the great picture of, of longing for the wholeness of your enemies, even though it might cost you. That's an entirely different way of life. And in, and in reference to what you said about the Crusades just a little bit ago, we might look backwards at the Crusades and say, well, that was just an odd time in which Christians might have had violence of spirit towards somebody else. Uh, but, but I think we see some of that today that I, I know very few people, myself included, Gary, are anchored in the kingdom in such a way that when somebody does me wrong, that I actually still long for their wholeness in the midst of it. No, I know. I mean, I just think of the difference if over you know, 1,700 years, instead, I'm not saying instead of reciting the Apostles' Creed and worship, that, we, that was fine to do it, but we'd follow that up by saying, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. And then he goes on to talk about how he causes the rain to fall the, to the just and the unjust, and ends with the statement, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we want to turn that into like this perfect morality. But what he's saying is being perfect in love, that you perfectly love everybody, just like your heavenly father does. Like if Christians had done that for 1700 years, in addition to the creeds, <laughs> I think we'd be in a better place. Oh, I think so too. And again, just to be clear that love in our culture sometimes gets co-opted to mean permission and turning a blind eye to, and that's not what we're talking about. I think some people think, well, we have to take sin seriously, right? And and love does take sin desperately seriously. It, it, what it does is it moves towards it and, and it might cost you everything to move towards to 
break the power of that sin. That's what love does. It, it couldn't take it more seriously. So as opposed to this idea of we're trying to bounce back and forth between permission and taking sin seriously, that's not what love does. Love takes sin desperately seriously. No, it does. And But it works, like as you said, it's always looking for what is in the best interest of others. And uh, let me, I won't pick on who it was, but um, I was on the board for a university and we were trying to make a statement um, uh, on some issue of some social issue. And somebody had written uh, in the draft and it wasn't me who wrote it, but it just said, we, you know, we need to work hard, you know, to love those who disagree with us, you know, in this, uh, in this area. And somebody on the board said, so I don't know, do we really want to say that we love these people? Shouldn't we be saying we respect them? Mm-hmm. or something like that. And we actually got into this debate. And I, I'm sitting there looking at it. I suddenly said, hey, uh, did are we really questioning whether or not we should love people <laughs> just because they're our enemy? We view them as an enemy, either politically or socially. And the whole room, like, just like, it was like a dope slap. Like, we're really doing this. We're really having a debate under whether or not we should love, where Jesus clearly said, love them. Oh, I love it. Well, Gary, I can sympathize with that dope slap. I know I've needed it several times throughout the course of my life. And you've been a friend who's given it to me from time to time, which I appreciate. I love the wisdom and insight. You're the only person I know that can bring Spider-Man, the Nicene Creed, and a theology of discipleship together. Thanks for joining us this morning with all the wisdom and insight you have. Thank you so much, Peter. We'll take a short break and wrap up this hour of the show and preview what's coming up next on Hour 2 here for the 10th of June on Mornings Without Carmen. such an interesting conversation with Gary Stratton. He is nothing if not thought-provoking, but I think he's carved out some pretty interesting space. I know, again, for those of us that are wondering, what does the future of the church look like? And, And I don't know that it's about trying harder to just get better. I think we've been doing that for a couple of generations now. And and the very definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. And what Gary is is suggesting is that we go back once again, revisit who Jesus was, what the teachings were that he had, and and, uh, begin to learn to walk in them, not just from a theological or intellectual standpoint that we can parrot them back, but through the power of the Spirit that brings the life of God into our life, that we actually become the very realities of the kingdom. I think this is what it means to become Christ-like and and can resolve so many of the issues of power and strife and hypocrisy and turmoil in the day. So great first hour. If you didn't get a chance to catch that, go back and listen to the podcast at MyFaithRadio.com. Up next at the top of this next hour is Melissa Mork, and we are going to talk a bit about how to navigate grief with humor. She's done a great class on this for a number of years, and it'll help be helpful for all of us that have wrestled through grief in our lives. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.